0: And now the Federal Drive with Tom Temen. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, October eleventh, twenty twenty-two, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, will agencies get a twenty twenty-three budget in December? Don't hold your breath. Plus, Homeland Security's research wing is looking for more partners. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Army is rolling out a series of new initiatives meant to help get the technologies developed by small businesses into the weapons systems its soldiers use in the field. In particular, the Army wants to incentivize its large contractors to partner with those small businesses and include their technologies in proposals. In an exclusive interview with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu, Gabe Camarillo, the Undersecretary of the Army, previewed some of those initiatives.
1: Within our national defense strategy, one of its key pillars is to build an enduring advantage for our national security. And one aspect of that is a very resilient industrial base. We all know, we all have heard for many years that our small businesses are a vital part of that. They are a font for innovation. Uh, They provide critical capabilities uh, to our warfighters. Uh, and they are uh, an absolutely important part of building that enduring advantage moving forward. Typically, when we talk about small businesses, it is in the context of bridging the valley of death, making sure that innovation in that small in, uh, innovation base uh, is able to transition to a program. And having been in the private sector myself and also working on these issues for many years, uh, we felt in the Army that we needed to do something in addition to help bridge that valley of death. Often we talk about it only in the context of direct contract awards with small business, but that neglects the fact that many of the opportunities available to small businesses are to partner and team with other larger companies, integrators in many cases that can uh, marshal together the innovation and the technology that our small businesses provide into a capability that can be used by our warfighters. So uh, we looked at and studied this challenge for quite some time, and uh, we developed a set of initiatives that we hope Will help uh, address this issue uh, specifically and help us uh, to further encourage uh, participation by our small business innovation base uh, within our Army programs uh, by looking at this critical linkage using uh, integrators.
2: Okay, Uh, well, we'll, let's start there, I guess, uh, that linkage between uh, innovators and and maybe um, some of the primes, which is uh, one of the the main initiatives that you're rolling out this week. Talk about how you're going to actually build those linkages and how that program is is really going to work.
1: Absolutely. So I I think, you know, to recognize that, uh, again, these small businesses have a really hard time doing business with the Department of Defense. It is a very complex acquisition process. They often, uh, unless they are part of one of our formal programs involving mentors and proteges, for example, um, it's very difficult. You don't have a Sherpa to kind of guide you through the entire process. Uh, So we've recognized that. And recognizing that our, our you know, mid-size and larger companies that provide that integration role, they are one of those critical pillars, we looked first and foremost at a way to incentivize those uh, companies, those integrators, uh, to do, businesses, do business with those small business innovative research companies uh, that we are already invested in, that are developing critical technologies that we need, and most importantly, that offer the innovation that we're going to rely on in the future. So we've created as one of the five initiatives, uh, a new project, we call it Project Vista. It's valuing innovation with a source selection technical advantage to look at a pilot program where we might uh, examine some of our programs of record. Most likely it will be some of the smaller uh, ACAT-2, ACAT-3 or ACAT-4 programs where we can begin to pilot this, where we might be able to see where we can give source selection uh, credit to uh, those proposals that bring in the use of uh, critical technologies and innovative approaches that uh, are stemming from that small business innovation base, whether it's companies that have been funded through SIBR and sitter programs in the past, or they are uh, providing innovation in terms of critical technology areas that across the department and within the Army, we know we're going to need in the future.
2: In order to provide that source selection advantage, do you need to make any regulatory changes or do you need help from Congress or, or- can you basically do it as long as you explain in the procurement what the what the rating system is going to be?
1: Absolutely. I mean, everything, of course, has to be fully compliant with our procurement integrity laws, with uh, all of our regulations and statutes for uh, acquisition. And the idea here is that within all of those rules, as long as we're very clear up front to everybody in industry, uh, how we might give source selection credit, and we do it today already on things like where you know companies can – provide additional information on how we can do sustainment costs, or uh, we give, in some cases, um, you know, reduced lifecycle costs, uh, a little bit of extra credit in the source selection for proposals that come back with those types of ideas, or where you identify critical supply chain uh, issues. So this is not unprecedented. It would add another category where we might explore in the right program, uh, in the right context, the ability for vendors to come back uh, with an approach uh, that we would, it would help us to incentivize the use of these small businesses. Now, what the effect of all this is, it might help some of these innovative companies bridge the valley of death a little bit better.
2: And, and do you have a good sense yet for how how broad that pilot's going to be in the initial stage? You're just going to try it on one or two programs at first, or is it going to be broader than that?
1: No, I think initially it's going to be a, a, you know a limited pilot at first. And as I said earlier, I think we'll start with some of our smaller scale programs to uh, experiment and test to see how it would work. And then I think as we learn more, we'll have the opportunity to scale it out uh, after the first couple of years.
2: Okay, so, so, so that helps companies who've already come in through that CIBR front door. You're also, I think, trying to get more people through the door in the first place with this thing that you're calling Army Catalyst. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I would say that we'll look at other sources of innovation beyond just the CIBR and SIDR awardees for that uh, source selection evaluation credit. I think we'll we'll have an opportunity to maybe expand that envelope a little bit further. Uh, another initiative is the Catalyst Program. So we do have, uh, of course, a uh, you know, a cyber program across the Army where we are looking to uh, fund and develop uh, you know critical technologies that we know are aligned to Army priorities. Uh, we are going to look at uh, creating kind of a, a management reserve of that program to deal with those critical issues that are of importance for Army modernization in 2030 and in 2040, which is what we refer to as the next horizon of critical capabilities. Uh, So we will look at some of these um, businesses that fall into that space and find a way to maybe um, provide direct investment to some of those critical technology areas that might otherwise fall through the cracks. It enables us to make sure that we're always gonna feel the most capable, and most uh, well-equipped Army we possibly can.
2: And are you planning to publish some new set of, of what those priorities are, or are people not going to be surprised because they align to what the Army modernization priorities have, have already been?
1: Yeah, we want to provide some kind of publication that will give uh, you know participants potentially in that program a little bit more clarity about what critical enabling technologies we're looking for uh, investment and what challenges we're looking to solve. So as we know, uh, many of them are not a surprise. I think as you look at our modernization uh, priorities today, but I think we'll certainly have an opportunity to kind of drill that down. You know, we will be consistent with some of the ones that, for example, the department has identified. There's 12 critical technologies that across the department we know we're gonna need. Uh, I think some of those are very much consistent with capabilities the Army's gonna focus in on over
2: the next few years. So there'll be discrete technical problems rather than just saying, hey, we need help with long range precision fires. Next one is the intellectual property cell of experts, uh, which I understand you're going to stand up within Department of the Army. DOD has done some of this, I think, at the direction of Congress, establishing, I think, what they called an IP cadre. How is this different? Um, why, why is the Army going its own way here?
1: Absolutely. So uh, there was congressional direction a few years ago to develop a cadre of expertise regarding intellectual property uh, about two or three years ago, I believe. And that's uh, been done by the Department of Defense. Um, but of course, it's very small in its size. Um, the other services have all explored developing their own cadre to augment and expand the use of this uh, talent and skill set. And let me explain a little bit about why that's important. So, as we all know, um, you know, one of the big concerns in the industrial base in doing business with the Department of Defense and the Army in particular is protection for their intellectual property, which is an issue that takes on significant and added uh, uh, importance when you're looking at small businesses that. Uh, are kind of placing bets based on a couple of key technology areas that they've innovated on. Uh, The idea of what the Army developed a few years ago in an intellectual property strategy was to have a more nuanced, more tailored approach to IP moving forward. You know, the typical refrain is either we ask for all the IP we can possibly get because we're concerned about long-term sustainment costs, or we don't think about it early enough, and then we end up paying the price in the future. Our policy from two or three years ago was to have a more nuanced approach. You know, there are ways to um, have tailored approaches to IP that are appropriate for each individual developmental program and that are specifically important to that set of technologies that are being developed. Part of the problem we have is a lack of expertise in this area within the Army. So uh, the idea here is to not rely on a small cell across the department because there's just not enough experts to go around, but, but to be to develop its own cadre of expertise within the army. And that will help us in a number of ways. First and foremost, as we are looking at uh, you know, more dedicated, more focused use of our existing small business innovation research programs, how can it inform some of those efforts and strategies moving forward? But then as we tailor program acquisition strategies, whether it's the smaller programs I mentioned earlier, or some of our larger developmental efforts, we will benefit from having IP expertise in-house that will help us to develop kind of those tailored approaches so that we are crafting the right approach very early on, and we're asking for the right amount of IP from industry, not more than what we need. And it needs to be tailored, given whether it's a software development program, or a hardware-specific program that relies on some software, there's very different approaches. And we need that expertise in order to help us uh, get the development that we want in the future.
2: Yeah, and as you've kind of been alluding to here, part of the problem I think that, that DOD faced when it was standing up its cadre is there's just not enough human beings who have deep expertise in IP as it applies to government procurement. So you're going to have to grow these people, right, to, to, to some extent. How, how are you going to go about finding These individuals, where are you going to recruit them from and how are you going to teach them what the Army needs them to know? That's
1: a fantastic question, uh, because in the past, we've always wanted to develop and cultivate that talent. Uh, The challenge is retaining that expertise over time in the Army. So. Part of our strategy here is to grow some expertise organically, and some of it might be that we're able to get tap into from the private sector, uh, folks that we can maybe put on on loan, for example, to uh, federal service or who would be willing to do a short term of federal service, whether it's in a defined kind of term limited uh, federal appointment uh, or something of that nature that we might be able to bring in expertise uh, at different times and rotate people in. Uh, that have that expertise in the private sector. Uh, the bottom line is, we're going to need to have some cadre of expertise in in order to be able to inform the strategies of our very top programs and some of our more tailored approaches for innovation that we're getting after in the small business space.
2: And then you got to make sure that program offices actually leverage that expertise. Is that uh, something that you're going to need to focus on to make sure that these folks aren't just sitting waiting for problems to come their way?
1: Oh, my sense is that that very opposite is going to happen. Uh, there is a significant Appetite, I would say, for that expertise across our program executive offices, our PEOS, Uh, they've been asking for this in some ways, having to try to grow it or borrow it where they can, Um, and and I think we need to provide that capability for them. So I think there's there's a demand signal that's already there that's not being met.
2: All right, I want to make sure we get to the rest of the initiatives before we we run out of time today. Let's let's talk about the R and D marketplace that you're also announcing this week, which I think also gets to the idea similar to Project Vista of connecting these small innovators with primes.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the challenges we have is visibility across uh, our S&T and R&D investment basis. So what we've already been funded, there's a lot of innovation out there. Uh, and I've had this conversation with Secretary Heidi Hsu, who's the Undersecretary for uh, Research and uh, Engineering. There is a desire to just make, make a, a little bit better, uh, provide a little bit better insight into what technologies we've already invested in and what companies are doing today. Uh, I know there's a lot of repositories of that expertise elsewhere, but none that capture what we've already funded within the Army. And we want to promulgate that information as wide as possible to our program managers uh, and our PEOs to enable kind of that, that partnership that we talked about earlier uh, with industry and particularly with the integrators. And then the, the fifth one, I'll just mention it right now, it's you know, existing programs that we have to uh, award innovation within our small business innovation base, uh, like our XTech and our Prime competitions, What we want to do is, you know, rather than just relying on the mentor protege program to hopefully find them somebody to work with, we want to develop an award uh, that will recognize the best examples of that partnership between integrators and small business innovative research companies, uh, where they're working together, they work on developing a strategy, working with Army program managers to bridge that valley of death, and they can provide a capability that the Army is going to use.
2: How are these prizes going to be selected? Maybe say a bit about sort of the scale and, and, and scope of, of, of what those awards are going to be. Are, are they going to be substantial uh, in, in, enough to incentivize people to come in?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the idea behind the comp- the, com- the competitive awards is that winners will be eligible for uh, you know, coming out of the CIBR kind of phase two or phase three effort, a follow on contract for prototype development and deployment. So, it has to align ultimately with areas where we have requirements and where we have funding. So, let me emphasize that first. But we're looking for, in this particular case, really good partnerships between integrators and small businesses uh, that provide uh, combined integrated capability that we think will make a meaningful difference for soldiers. And that's part of the equation that I think we don't have a conversation enough about in the department. We look at small businesses and what uh, individual component or software tool or or one particular capability that they have, but the department ultimately buys integrated solutions. and so we're looking for that best combination as part of this. As far as the scale is concerned, I think we'll start we'll start relatively small to try to begin to you know prototype how this would work uh, and then I think we'll scale it out like everything else uh, based on our experience.
2: There has been um, even before you launched these initiatives, obviously huge focus at the DoD level at the Army level, and each of the services on attracting small and innovative and, and non traditional companies. And I think a lot 's even happened at the congressional level since since the last time you were in the building at, at some point, do you run into the problem that there are just too many front doors out there and companies don 't know exactly how to engage with the government because it 's complicated and confusing? Which is oh, the problem I, you're trying to solve in the first place, try to make government work less complicated and confusing for small businesses.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, it is a, a systemic challenge that just by the nature of the complexity of our acquisition process and the multiple avenues uh, through which as a department we buy capabilities and we develop those capabilities, it's very confusing. It's, it's a Byzantine uh, maze of a process. Uh, What we need to continue to do as leaders within the department, and certainly I'm working to do with, uh, you know, uh, Doug Bush, who's our Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology, how can we simplify that, provide roadmaps, and in many ways, opportunities for folks to to demystify the process. Uh, I think we have some really good programs that we can make better use of. Uh, I also think we need to continue to engage uh, through, for example, our small business programs in particular about how to best link up with uh, opportunities to bridge the valley of death. And I think you know we have existing programs like Mentor, Protege, uh, and others, I think that are working great, but things that we're trying to innovate on are like the R&D marketplace, making sure that on the catcher's end, we have a little bit more visibility into what innovation and what technology we've already invested in today.
2: Getting back to some of those congressional changes that I mentioned that I think kind of happened in between your last tour and and this current tour that you're you're serving in now as undersecretary, things like authority for follow-on production, OTAs, and and middle tier of acquisition, have have those initiatives and the ways that the Army has used them, and and the Army's, I think, been one of the most prolific users of them, have they, from your perspective, made a big difference to how companies can engage with the government compared to – pre that wave of many reforms?
1: Absolutely. I I would say that the most significant change from all of the congressional reforms in the middle part of last decade is that it's enabled the army to utilize speed in our acquisition process. Um, Clearly with the development of middle tier uh, acquisition pathways, the, uh, you know, proliferated use of OTAs, for example, that have streamlined the contracting process considerably. And if I think if you look at the statistics, the Army is probably the biggest user over the last uh, six to seven years of OTAs across the Department of Defense. Uh, So I think it's enabled us to go very, very quickly. And that's great. Uh, The part that we are now working on, particularly in our very large acquisition and development programs, is making the conversion from an OTA prototyping middle tier approach into a fielded uh, sustainable configuration of a capability that will ultimately be part of the Army's inventory for a longer period of time. The best example of that, for example, is the mobile protected firepower program uh, that the Army started out through uh, you know, a middle, mid-tier uh, uh, capability uh, in terms of us being able to uh, very quickly develop prototypes. Um, we were able to leverage what the best of industry was to offer and now, uh, getting ready to start fielding that capability, you know, going to the process of making sure that it goes through all the checks and balances that we normally would, uh, you know, operational testing, uh, reliability, you name it. Making sure that as we um, in you know kind of assimilate the MPF into the Army's inventory, all of those checks and balances are are dealt with. And so we're we're, we're learning from that process. I think. Uh, you know how we make that transition and it's going to be very important as we continue to evolve other prototyping efforts into those final configurations particularly for example in our long range fires portfolio
2: yeah sounds like it's almost its own valley of death program problem internal to the department what what's what's the main barrier there is it a lack of authority a lack of policy written down is it just a we haven't quite done this before and we're still learning
1: Actually, I I don't think that there's a barrier there. And I certainly don't see a value of death. I think we've got a very high return rate. So for example, Next Generation Squad Weapon, I just mentioned mobile protected firepower. Uh, We're set to have more of these programs go from prototyping to production and kind of fielding over the next couple of years. So we're building a lot of momentum. I think we've cracked the code on this. Uh, What I am emphasizing, though, is that you know, we're, we're, you know, we're focused on for the next two years is making sure that we're making that conversion in the right way. And I think I'll give you one example, long range hypersonic weapon, which is a critical capability the army is developing. We have spent a lot of time in the last two years through our rapid capabilities and critical technologies office, RICTO, developing that system. At the same time, we know it's ultimately going to be a program that will be uh, assimilated into the normal process. It will be fielded and it has to be sustained. So we have representatives from PEO Missiles in Space who are working side by side with the developmental teams in the RICTO office, making sure that they're getting ready for that handoff so that it happens smoothly and the transition happens seamlessly. Uh, So we are learning very good lessons about how to do it. And I think we're building some really good momentum there, but I don't wanna convey the impression that there's a valley of death. I think all I'm saying is, you know. We're doing pretty well at this, and we're learning on the fly, and we're doing a pretty good job, in my opinion.
2: Okay, no, that's a good clarification. Um, Let me double back on OTAs for just a minute, because there has been so much energy in that, especially in the Army. One of the um, concerns slash criticisms that's come up in GAO and IG reports, and frankly, my own observations, is the proliferation of especially consortium-based OTAs. As much goodness as can happen in each one of those, they also – can tend to be their own walled gardens so that at the department level, don't always see exactly what all the requirements are happening in there, all the individual procurements that are happening in there, not even all the spend that's happening in there. Is there is there a knowledge management problem that you see in, in terms of, you know, what you as undersecretary or what ASALT um, knows about the collective work that's being done across all of those little innovation consortiums? Do we know where we're using the money? Do we know – if we're duplicating effort, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, it, it raises a good question, and, and I'm very familiar with the issue, both from my time in the private sector and certainly from my time in government. Um, I think the consortia play a really important role to uh, do market research, help us kind of um, promulgate information and uh, better awareness of what opportunities there are within the Army uh, for the development of uh, new capabilities through the OTAs that they are they are aligned to. So I think... Just from a commodity perspective, it is a community of interest, and I think the consortia play a very vital role to help spread the word about what opportunities are out there. Uh, the, the interaction with the industrial base, as you said, can get uh, complex, you know, very complicated between uh, what our contracting officers will say, what the consortia will say, uh, and then how that gets filtered out ultimately to the industrial base. Uh, so, I don't think there is a common issue across the entire portfolio of OTAs and consortia. I think it varies by uh, consortia. It varies by commodity base that you're talking about. Uh, Some of them are very collaborative between the industrial base uh, and the government, and it works very, very well. The example I would give there, for example, is Army Aviation. Uh, There is a very, very tight-knit community there, and I think that they work, for example, really well, for example, on the ecosystem for future vertical lift to help define what that modular open uh, system and architecture standards are gonna be uh, for that you know, future development of platforms. So uh, I think they can play a really good role in those areas. In others, we just gotta make sure that uh, we are not uh, closing doors for industry, that we are making sure that we're opening doors as much as possible, and that we're providing clarity uh, regarding the opportunities that exist. So we have to be very mindful of it. And I know that uh, the ASOL team is working with the broader contracting community to make sure we do that.
2: Before we run out of time, I definitely want to at least touch on another issue that's been a pretty big change in DOD acquisition regulations in the past year, which is or past few years, rather, is, which is software acquisition. We now have a software acquisition pathway, a lot of attention on that area from Congress as well. What are your observations coming back in now on, on how that area has changed and what the Army still needs to do?
1: I think it is long overdue. I'm extremely pleased that the Army has embraced, uh, in you know, my view, the last nine months that I've been here, uh, the software acquisition pathway, and most importantly, the uh, agility in our requirements development process that has to match it. Uh, as we all know, uh, you know, the Army, the Department of Defense, really the federal government writ large, it is it is working very very hard to convert what is an industrial age model or developing new capabilities, which works great. If it's a tank, uh, an aircraft carrier, or a fighter jet, Uh, it is very hard when it is a software-based capability that you're developing and you're looking to achieve a minimally viable product that you can scale from there in an agile way. uh, That is very hard to conform to our existing processes. So we've invented new processes across the department uh, I'm very pleased that the Army is leading the way in many efforts to try to pioneer the software acquisition pathway on a couple of programs. Uh, and I think as we look ahead to some major programs, for example, uh, the development of our our enterprise business system convergence program, which is a future ERP, we're looking at leveraging that software acquisition uh, pathway to do this. and and what is the key difference? It recognizes that you know we don't deliver these capabilities in a giant big bang. We're going to do it over time with software drops and we're going to continue to iterate very closely with the user and in my view it's recognizing best acquisition practices it's what for example we do uh, in the classified world very very well it's what the cfts do with the acquisition community within our modernization priorities right now very very well it's tight linkage very close collaboration between requirements and development and making sure that you're iterating quickly over time to get the best product viable or available
2: to the user and one of the common complaints about doing software acquisition through the years has been just paying for it, wedging it into the, the Pentagon's budgeting process. Congress sort of tried to help with that, creating this new colorless money pilot program, BA8 as it's sometimes called. Army has been um, not, not a huge user of it so far. I think there's only one program in it as of now. Do we need to try more of that? Should we expect next year's budget to see uh, to, to to have more proposals for, for the BA8 uh, money in it?
1: Well, I'm very supportive of the BA8 pilot. I think the the colorless acquisition, the real advantage to that is that, again, it helps us uh, get, a, get a little bit of flexibility from the industrial based model. The industrial model is that you're going to develop something and then you're ultimately going to field a hardware capability and then you're going to sustain it. It's premised on very discrete kind of uh, milestones and timelines. But as we know in software, you are never in a position where something is fully fielded. You're never You're always in the process of sustaining it, and you're always in the process of doing a little bit of development. So what that means is you need a little bit of RDT&E, you need what's called procurement, and you need what's called sustainment almost simultaneously to get this done right and to make sure that we deliver the best capability to the Army. So uh, as we expand the pilot or as we make better use of it, I'm looking forward to making sure that it's employed in the best way for the Army.
0: Gabe Camarillo is Undersecretary of the Army, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. To hear the entire interview, head to federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Homeland Security's Research Wing is looking for more partners. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.